Welcome, sweet dorks. Uh, we've got a very special interim episode of uh, New Two for you. Uh, we got to speak to Andrew Carmel, and it was amazing, right, Steve? <laughs> it really was. This is incredible. It was actually just meant to be like 15 minutes that we tacked on to the yeah. end of our Ghostlight episode with the FTE boys, James and Nathan. But in the end, he gave us around about two hours worth of, of material, that um, of recordings rather, and we couldn't possibly have sort of included that at the end unless we had like a three and a half hour episode. Yeah. <laughs> so we thought we'd, uh, we'd package it up into a nice little bonus episode for our sweet dogs. He, he was so generous with his time. We were only expecting to sort of get like, you know, maybe 10 to 15 and then edit, edit it down to a little snippet just as a bonus. But um, yeah, he just went on and answered all, all the questions that we've had. You know, some of the questions that we had weren't even about um, Ghostlight. He ended up sort of branching out and just sort of talking about the whole McCoy era and his whole tenure on the show. And yes. wow, it was really interesting to, yeah, to hear about it from his perspective. Yeah, and a real privilege as well. I mean, a lot of these questions yeah. were, and, you know, ideas were sort of things that we've had over, you know, decades, and to be able yeah. to talk to him about it was just amazing. So, yeah, um, I guess sit back and enjoy Sweet Dorks, our interview with Andrew Carmel. Yeah, enjoy. All right, Andrew Carmel, thanks so much for joining us on Nudahoo. We're so Thank grateful to have so you. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, it's a pleasure. And isn't it surreal that here we are on opposite sides of the planet just <laughs> chatting away? <laughs> it's super weird. It's super weird. I tell you, it's not like the good old days of the telephone with a twisted pair of cable. It's we've moved on a little bit since then. We wanted to ask you first. Um, you were hired by um John Nathan Turner as the script editor, correct? Um, in yep. 1987. Uh, you'd have to crunch the numbers. Yeah. So yeah, the twenty. The way my <laughs> reference point for that is that the twenty fifth anniversary was in my second year. So and I know that who was sixty three, right? It started mm, so sixty. Sure. So eighty eight would be my second year. So that sounds right. Around about eighty seven, uh, I would have. Might have, might have been the tail end of 86 when I joined, because I, I joined just in December, just before Christmas one year. So, I mean, how did that sort of come about? How did you get the job? What were you doing at the time when you got it? And how did that come about? Yeah. Okay, well, very briefly, I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be a novelist. And I thought in my innocent youth that the an easy way to support myself while writing novels would be to write for television, because obviously... It's really easy to break into writing for television. Little did I know. And I got a book by Malcolm Hulk, who was a great Doctor Who writer. Yes. I didn't know at the time, with advice on how to write for television. I wrote a load of TV scripts. Uh, and back in those days, the way it worked, there was still room for the one-off play. I don't know what people will think when I say television play, but it's like a little mini movie. Mm. And th- these used to be all over the TV schedules. And they were great because they did give a forum for new writers it means you didn't have to break in for writing. I mean, in, in Australia, I assume it'd be something like Neighbours, the long-running soap, which gives a lot of writers their first shot. Mm. Well, no disrespect to Neighbours or Coronation Street or Emmerdale Farm or any of the long-running <laughs> soaps, but the one's soul shrivels a little at the prospect of writing a spec script for any of them, as opposed <laughs> to writing you know, the one-off television play, which you've always wanted to do. Mm. So in those days, there were loads of those uh, on TV. So that was the natural thing to write. And I wrote probably upwards of a dozen of those uh basing the format on my lovely little writing for television book and which incidentally contained one of the best pieces of advice you'll ever hear as a writer it said keep your covering letter short keep it brief Uh, these days it would be an email rather than a covering letter but it literally said here's my script i hope you like it that's enough because uh, i think amateurs do fall in that trap of writing 30 pages of you know their entire biography trying to Please read my script. (laughs) But anyway, so it's full of of useful, practical advice. Some of it out of date even then. 
sent off loads of scripts. Uh, nothing happened for a while. But then I got invited into the BBC to join a bunch of aspiring... There was sort of a, a special department of the BBC to encourage aspiring writers. These days they've got something called the Writer's Room, which is a lot more flash with its internet presence, but I don't think it's any more effective, and it might even be a little less effective. Now, none of us in that group got directly into television as a result, but there was a lot of side effects. So I met other writers, which is very, would prove to be very valuable shortly. And one of those writers had an agent, and Malcolm Cole. It was Malcolm who uh, went on to write Delta yes, and the Bannerman for me. Sure. I was immediately impressed with his professionalism, but he wasn't the only one I met there who was good. Uh, Ian Briggs I met, and I thought he was terrific too. Oh, wow. So uh, the thing is, Malcolm said, you know, he, we were talking about what we're doing, and I said I just sent my scripts to every TV company in the land, and he said, you do know you can do exactly the same thing, sending them to agents, which had never occurred to me. I thought, I didn't think it worked like that. I thought you had to have, a, you know, a track record before you got an agent, but no, you could send a script to an agent and win an agent. This is where the the answer to your question begins to merge into sight finally. Uh, so I I did that. I, I wrote a script, which was my breakthrough script. It was called Word of Mouth. And your listeners won't remember this, but in the days before the internet, there was something called phone sex. And it wasn't like texting. It was like a you would dial a premium rate. And I, I, I researched this. I never actually did this, I hasten to add. But you would dial a premium rate number and uh, you would talk dirty with some woman on the other end. And she was probably like, you know, some old granny doing her knitting, but she'd have this sexy voice and pretend to be this naughty girl who did all kinds of extraordinary things. And guys would get off doing this. I I'm saying men and women in those roles because it was mostly men dialing up women. There were other configurations, I'm sure, were available. Anyway, there's this thing called phone sex. And to me, the extraordinary aspect of that is that it was really all in the head in all kinds of ways, right? I mean, it was a fantasy on every level, including the persona of the sex provider, the woman. So I thought, what would happen if you had this woman who did that and she created this persona and some guy became obsessed with it, like he was like a serial serial killer type, you know, killer, stalker type, and he came after that woman. So I wrote this script and I remember, I, th I was aware quite early on that this was as cut, ab cut above my usual script. But one thing about it was I'd got sort of impatient and fed up with getting these nice letters back saying your script's, you know, you've written a good script, mm. but we, we don't really have a room for it. So I was kind of angry and I, and I wanted to write something that was quite shocking, mm. which this was. And my girlfriend at the time, I remember her reading it and said, oh, they'll never make this. But that was kind of a good sign. And indeed, they never did make it, but it, that was the script that got me my agent. And my agent was a man named Richard Wakeley, and stay tuned, guys. Richard knew John, the producer of Doctor oh, Who. They'd wow. been young actors together in all kinds of dodgy TV shows before they both decided acting was not their destiny, and John became a floor manager, I guess, at the BBC in those days, and Richard became an agent. But they, they remained friends, they remained in touch. And when John suddenly, and I do mean suddenly, found that he needed a script editor, because what had happened, uh, there'd been all kinds of hitting the fan at the, do at the BBC, Doctor Who had been sort of cancelled, mm -hmm. then it was uncancelled, like, overnight. So John yeah. suddenly, and, and John had meanwhile lost his script editor. I mean, get into that later, that's another exciting story. <laughs> so John suddenly needed a script editor, and I mean, like, overnight. He'd gone from being on hiatus, which is a polite word for it, to being in production, and he, he needed to hit the ground running. 
And so he went to Richard and said, do you know anybody? And Richard, God bless him, recommended me and sent John that script, you know, the phone sex script. And and listen, it was a really good script. It was really gripping. I, I, I knew that because when I took it into that BBC writers group I told you about, we used to read our scripts, sit around a circle, read the scripts, and I could feel the tension in the air when people read it. And people were shocked by it and offended by it, which in a way was great because they were having strong reactions to it. So anyway, again, this script got it got me in the door it got me in the door with john and john actually talked to me about it he he said it was a good script he said it he felt it lacked something he felt that the killer needed a motivation like why was he like that and he said maybe it's just like he's standing at the grave of his wife and looking at the tomb at the headstone and i sort of nodded politely thinking oh no he doesn't need motivation he could i was sort of like a tarantino <laughs> thing everything could just be for surface effect <laughs> Not knocking Tarantino, but in his early days, it was a lot like that, right? Mm. So, you know, I thought, he's a serial killer. We don't need to know why. But over the years, that observation of John's has remained in my mind. and I've come around to thinking he was absolutely right about that, as as about much else besides. And a, a couple other things, like he, John was always very good with people. He was this big, gay, kind of drunk. He wasn't literally drunk, but he was an alcoholic, I would mm. say, kind of guy who had a lot of different sides good and bad but one of his good things was he was very good with people very interesting people so he was asking me what my accent was and this and that and uh, we we didn't talk much about work but just sort of sizing each other up and he thought that I could do the job thank hmm. god thank you John wow. and uh, <laughs> to cut a long story short he hired me at that time since you asked I I had decided my career as a writer wasn't going to happen in in the way that fate always works I gave up the writing because I wasn't making any headway with it. And I got a job. I'd, I'd studied computer science at university. I had a bachelor's degree in it. So I got a, a very high prestigious kind of software development job in Cambridge, which I was going to say I hate. I didn't really hate it, but it was so not me. I just used to go to work every day and I thought I was a... I was afraid they'd find me out because I was just a fraud. I just wasn't, I was never. I was never a company man. So, and yet when I got offered the job at the BB at the Doctor Who in London, I suddenly thought, oh my God, can I give away this security and blah, 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 and move ah. to London with this and that. But I took the plunge. And mm. w- this was around November or December, I think. And the next thing I knew, I was at the BBC and, and working on Doctor Who. God, what, was it, what was that like to, just to go from almost of giving giving up on writing to just suddenly being at the helm almost? like well, That's the good. way these things always work when you turn your back <laughs> on it. I mean, that's the way fates work. If I if I had been doing nothing and just unemployed, nothing would happen. But because I got a good high paying job, that was I think that was what triggered it on some kind of cosmic <laughs> karmic level. That's I think that's trade. what led to me getting the job. <laughs> but you were saying, what was it like? Um, well, I was full of beans because I actually had lots of ideas. At the time, and this is crucial, I'd say, although I had extensive reading background in science fiction, I'd sort of grown out of that. By the time I was about 15, I moved on to reading crime fiction and and the great works of literature. I mean, I was soon reading stuff like Thomas Pynchon uh, and William Gaddis and, and sort of leaving behind science fiction. But I'd never lost my... Um, admiration for it and my, and my affection for it so I was science fiction literate but crucially at the time when I signed up for Doctor Who what I was reading was I was reading comics and comics were undergoing the most wonderful renaissance starting with uh, in a comic called 2000 AD there was a writer uh, called Alan Moore who was yeah, cutting his yes, teeth and the, the first thing that yeah and the first signs the first thing I really knew of Alan Moore was Halo Jones which was this fabulous 
science fiction series that he wrote, serial that he wrote for uh, 2000 AD. So I'd read read that. And of course, when I discovered it, this guy had done a lot of other stuff, which at that time included uh, Miracle Man, who was, who was called Marvel Man, but they were sued by Marvel. Anyway, he'd written the Miracle Man comics. He had written V for Vendetta. Uh, he was done Swamp Thing, an astonishing run on Swamp Thing, which was mind-blowing. And just when I was starting Doctor Who, he was getting into Watchmen, which I still think is one of the greatest comics ever made. So all this stuff was buzzing around my brain. And indeed, once John had wanted to hire me, I then had to be approved by the head of series and serials, like the, you know, the, the guy further up the food chain, uh, who's called Jonathan Powell. And I went for an interview with Jonathan Powell, which was important in a couple ways. He asked me to pitch him an idea. And as it happened, I had a kind of an idea that had been inspired by Swamp Thing, because there's this point in the Swamp Thing continuity by Alan Moore where he was traveling through space. He was like this spore drifting through space. If anybody out there hasn't checked out these comics, you should, because they were, they were terrific. And anyway, so I had this kind of idea in mind, which I pitched to him, to uh, Jonathan Powell, and he liked it, and that was good. And then he kind of gave me a steely look, and he said, who is Doctor Who for? Who's the audience? Who's Doctor Who for? And I gave him a diplomatic answer. I said, oh, it's for everyone, right? And he said, no, it is for children. And I looked at him and I nodded. And in some of my mind, I was thinking, no, it's not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I will pretend to agree with you to get the job. But even at that moment, I never for <laughs> one nanosecond agreed with him. Because, I mean, it's obviously not. But th that's interesting because it's that sort of disparity and dichotomy has existed from the moment that Doctor Who started. Because when it was created back in 1963 by a genius, Canadian genius called Sidney Newman. I say he's a genius because he also created The Avengers, the Avengers my other yes. favorite TV show oh, yeah. that series. And he's responsible for instituting a lot of those TV plays that I was talking about. He, he sort of was responsible for, for creating a showcase for them. Anyway, this guy created Doctor Who, and at that time it was intended to be a kid's show. You know, it's supposed to have an educational angle, which is why the time travel thing was useful. I think they were thinking, oh, we will go and see what happened in the French Revolution and everybody will be edified. But of course, <laughs> it didn't turn out quite like that. And But the crucial thing was, Doctor Who was not made by the children's department. There was a children's TV department, but it was never made by them. It was always made by the mainstream series and serials drama department. So it was a kind of a cuckoo in the nest. And that had a number of implications. One was that it sort of wasn't a kid's show, even though it was aimed at kids because it was being made in the grown-up department, there was scope for it to be more adult than that. But also it meant that it was always looked down upon by the people in the series and serials department because it wasn't quite of their remit. So it was always, it was never quite at home anywhere. So uh, I think your question was, what was it like to get started on the show? <laughs> so I, I arrived well-equipped with ideas because I loved what Alan Moore was doing and it showed me a way to do kind of radical, exciting, groundbreaking science fiction with really good characters. There's this funny thing. I mean, this also happened with another writer called Moore. There was a TV writer called Simon Moore, who you probably wouldn't have heard of because he later went on to move to the States and he did a lot of work there. He ended up doing stuff like um, there was Gulliver's Travels for Hallmark. And uh, anyway, he's a wonderful writer. And I remember when I saw this TV show he did called Inside Out, just before I joined Doctor Who, and it opened my, my brain because 
I never realized that something could be that good. I always thought you sort of had to drop your expectations and do something that's kind of half stupid. But this showed me that you could write to the, the limits of your abilities and just trust in the audience to follow you. And the same with Alan Moore's comics. So those two writers had put me in a mindset where I was really ready to do something great if I, if I had the uh, materials to do it with. So I, I had a clear idea of how to approach Doctor Who because uh, it, Doctor Who, it'll sound strange to Doctor Who devotees, but it's, it's a very difficult format. There's, there's no limit. I mean, there's a huge number of shows, uh, existing episodes to inspect, but you wouldn't believe how many people stumbled over it. Both, mostly, uh, right, television writers who weren't fans of the show and didn't really know the show, but because it was seeped, saturated into the culture, they thought, oh, I can do a Doctor Who, but they couldn't. I mean, they just do this strange, deformed kind of creature. It was like Homer Simpson's idea of what a Doctor Who episode <laughs> <laughs> But at the same time, the dyed-in-the-wool fans who'd watched every episode ever, they could pretty much be counted upon to f*** it up too because they, the, the, the trap most of them fell into would be to write for a, a doctor and a, and a kind of story that was already extinct. So I would get scripts from people where the doctor would call the TARDIS the old girl, which is you know maybe a Pertwee <laughs> thing or, or, or a Troughton thing. But it certainly wasn't, I mean, that was absent by the time I joined the show. So it's a difficult format to write for, but at least I had this re reference point or touchstone. And what I actually used to do is I used to have copies of the Halo Jones graphic novels and give them to prospective writers to say, look, here's a, this is science fiction. It's got, a, it's got a real, it's really about something. The characters are real and it's brilliantly written and it's fresh, and this will give you some idea of the kind of thing we want to do. And sometimes that helped them, and sometimes it didn't, but at least I did. At least I had something I could point at. Uh, and soon enough, once I got my feet under the desk and got some scripts written, then I could give them scripts that had been written by people like Ian Briggs. It, Dragonfire was a good one to show people. And then uh, by the time in my second season we'd done Remembrance of the Daleks, which I still think is a towering masterpiece, mm. and the whole game changed. Sure. Absolutely. That's yeah. so interesting to hear you talk about um, 2000 AD being an influence because it was really going through like a bit of a, like it's a, it was a very British publication. It's like a bit of a British renaissance in comics at the time. Um, yeah. And, and it was, it was a weekly comic, which is not an American format. And it had judged, I mean, the reason it broke through is because of Judge Dredd, which was a very kind of British creation in that he's this, he's basically an evil fascist, but he's the good guy. And yet, if you read, you don't have to dig down too deep to see that he's not really being presented as a good guy, that the whole thing's a dy terrible dystopian nightmare. And he's just hes just sort of a fixed point amidst the chaos. But it, that, it, that sort of British cynicism was very welcome. <laughs> uh, I think you touched earlier that, um, uh, and one of the strengths, I suppose, of the Alan Moore type of comics is mm. that it is largely um, character-focused, much more so than, than plot-focused. And, and we were talking earlier, Dan and I, about how I think what you brought to the show was a real shift in the way in which Doctor Who moved from an A to B kind of plot based uh, storyline to something that was much more character focused and you know the, the yeah. characters of the Doctor and Ace in particular that's the first time that we see that that dynamic between Doctor and companion explored in that way do you think I mean was that intentional was that something obviously that was informed by Alan Moore well it it grew and the thing is there I am as a script editor and I'm 
nothing without my writers. Although the previous script editors had, had most tried to write as many episodes themselves as they could, which is a smart move because you make a lot of money that way. But <laughs> I, in my innocence, I had just broken, I just got through the door myself, just broken down the barriers. So I wanted to let other people in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, get them get them on the show too. And as I had mentioned earlier, I didn't know, I already had a couple writers in mind because I knew Malcolm Cole and Ian Briggs. I knew they were both good and I wanted to hire them. So that gave me a huge head start. And within days of sitting down in the office, well, in fact, <laughs> it's like the vultures circling a big carcass in the desert. As soon as they know there's a new script editor, loads of people approach him trying to sell them their wares, which is, <laughs> you know, that's the way it should be. I, sure. I got lots of agents phoning me up. And uh, I learned one of my first and most important lessons, which is, like an agent would phone up and say, oh, there's a couple of writers I'd like you to meet. I think they'll be good on the show. Can we book a, an appointment for them and I'll send you the scripts? And I say, yes. And then the scripts would arrive and these guys would be all wrong. And then I had still had an appointment with them. So the first lesson you learn is read the script and then maybe make an appointment. <laughs> so that was great. So all these, the point of this is all these people were approaching me, including a writer called Stephen Wyatt, who had also worked in that script development unit I mentioned, although I hadn't crossed his path there. And he uh, he very rapidly became clear that he could do a Doctor Who because he had a, a handle on it. Like he had visited this nightmarish tower block in London, which is like a high rise, you know, a skyscraper type thing, a social housing unit. And, it, and the, the uh, experience had left him somewhat psychically scarred and he wanted to write uh, a dystopian science fiction story based on that, and we were we did also talk in the course of that conversation about High Rise by J.G. Ballard, which is sort of yes. in that same area. Yeah. And so, but I knew right away that that was a great environment for a Doctor Who because it's contained. It would be cheap to shoot in, and also it exists in your mind, right? Like you have a story that's set in a tower block, and instantly in the viewer's mind, they they understand what that's that's like the containment of it, the isolation. Uh, and it comes alive in their mind. Whereas somebody who wants to write a story set in the, the swamp marshes of Venus, I mean, A, that's impossibly expensive to shoot. B, what does that mean? I don't know. But everybody has experience of these grim kind of urban blocks where they mm. can easily imagine it. So I knew right away we were onto a winner there. So quite early on, we began to develop stories that I knew could work as Doctor Who stories. And uh, you were talking about the, the primacy of character. The reason I got into that is it's a two-way thing, as I said. I needed good writers. When I began to get them, I got, for instance, Ian Briggs, who was a tremendous gift to me because we're talking about Ace, right? So the way it worked was I had to create the character of the new companion. There was already a companion called Mel, played by Bonnie Langford, who incidentally is hitting it out of the ballpark at the moment as an actress, serious actress in EastEnders, right? Yeah. But at the time... She was regarded as sort of more like a song and dance kind of person, what we'd call a light entertainment star. And the character they'd created for her was no good. I mean, she just, she was what I call a screamer. She was supposed to be a computer scientist, which was a good idea and would have, could conceivably have been a very positive role model for women. But she ended up just doing a lot of screaming and running away. So that Mm. character proved to be a cul-de-sac. So it was clear that Bonnie as Mel would be moving on. There'd be a new character soon. So John asked me to create the new character because since I was under contract to the BBC, they would own the character. Whereas if uh, a freelance writer created the character, they would have to, God forbid, be paid for use of that character. (laughs) So anyway, that was the way that, that, that it was set up. So I sat down, I created a character 
who was basically ace. She was called Alf, A-L-F, at that point. Uh, and she was like a teenage bover boot, which means a Doc, Doc Martin wearing kind of mm-hmm. yeah. uh, street streetwise character who was a teenage demolition expert. She had this stuff called Nitro 9, which was an explosive she'd cooked up. And if anybody's interested, she was largely influenced by another comic book of that period, which was called Love and Rockets. Uh, if you oh. look at there's a there's a space engineer in the, in those comics. I can't remember whether it's Jaime Hernandez or his brother Gilbert, who I think it was Jaime, yeah, who created this this chick. And so Ace was also had some of that in her DNA. So I created this character, and then we handed it over to, to Ian Briggs to write the first adventure featuring her, which was Dragonfire. And Ian took that character and he remained true to it, but he just improved it so much for a start he changed her name to ace because that was like her catchphrase ace she liked <laughs> things and she she went from being this kind of schematic sketch to being a fully fleshed out character so you're talking about the importance of character i suppose what i'm saying is i always understood that but i soon acquired the instruments necessary to put it into the show because i had great writers like briggs i mean i'm slightly getting goosebumps now because the thing about ian is he had a tremendous gift and still does. I saw him last week. He came to a reading of my play, God bless him. And he's a great character writer. I mean, he's one of the best in the country, which is why it's you know a crime against writing that he it hasn't been constantly employed over the years. So I had strong character writers. And, and you're right about Alan Moore. His character's a dynamite. But the thing about Moore I, that I would say is that he's also really good at plotting. I mean, if you look at something like Watchmen, I mean, it's slightly der- derivative. That thing about you fake the alien invasion had been done a couple times before but within that the the sort of wheels within wheels like you know the, the uh that pirate ship comic and all that stuff he's, yeah. a, he's a masterful plotter and and in swamp thing he did some great storytelling too so uh, i think you're right about the real characters make, making the difference especially in the sense of the doctor and ace because as you say we had never before seen that kind of relationship between the doctor and the companion although uh, I say with a smile on my face. We did come to see quite a lot of that in the new Who, didn't we? I think, I think it came to it came to set the template for everything that was to come. Although I didn't, of course, realize that at the time, or indeed for years afterwards. But the crucial thing there was we had created a real character with depth as the companion, which is sort of the only way you can do that. The, the Doctor could be an interesting character, but it, for my money, he has to remain an enigma. So you there's a limited amount that you can do with the doctor so you're thrown back on the companion but the great thing is if you make the companion a real character the doctor in response to her has to be a real character through his interaction with her and i think that's what what we lucked into well it was it was luck and good judgment because uh i had good instincts and i'd hired some terrific writers so that's why that happened fabulous (laughs) I just got goosebumps listening to that. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, we've just been talking on our our episode about of Ghostlight about um about the um the focus on the companion character and how that sort of moved on to the new show and how they 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 started doing that almost immediately uh, when they did with uh, with Rose with Rose yeah 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 I think I didn't realize this until it was pointed out to me in recent times literally just two or three years ago, I think a friend told me this, but there's a direct lineage between Survival, featuring Ace, and Rose, featuring Rose. But it's it's almost like a continuation of that approach to the to the character and to the storytelling in the show generally, uh, which is great. I mean, they 
Russell made an absolutely smart move doing that because that's what you need. I think the doctor needs to be grounded in that kind of reality and have a sympathetic character, uh, well-developed three-dimensional character with him to make his fantastical adventures mean something. Where I depart from Russell is, uh, and I'm with Terence Dix on this, he used to say no snogging in the TARDIS, which he meant... <laughs> Uh, no no romantic entanglement between the Doctor and his companion. And uh, Terence, who was a previous script editor, a lovely man, he had this fantastic reason for that, which was that the Doctor, to us, to, 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 sorry, to the Doctor, we, human beings, are almost like pets. They're almost like Wally, your cat. Because the thing is, <laughs> he'll be alive and he'll have these people that he loves and they'll die and then he'll get another one. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? And I thought, wow, that's so true. So that's, I mean, that's a concrete reason why you don't want that kind of involvement. But just from my, my just from a storytelling point of view, the doctor needs to be unencumbered. He has these companions, but as soon as you give him a wife, a daughter, anything, he, you normalize him. And the doctor is not normal. He's what he is. He's the Lone Ranger. He wears a mask. Nobody knows who he is. He rides into town. He beats up the bad guys. He he, he makes good triumph. Then he rides off again in a cloud of dust. You don't mm. want to have too much of his domestic background. It just is not. He's not that kind of character. And I feel there's a fundamental misunderstanding there. Now I totally understand that when you get dishy Billy Piper and dishy David Tennant and stick them together in the TARDIS and you are Russell T. Davis, who is another great writer about characters and comes from soaps and you've got two, these two great, wonderful, attractive characters knocking around together, inevitably your mind goes to romance between them or an unfulfilled romance or something. But guys, I really do think that's fatal. I think you can have any amount of kind of sizzling tension on some level, but it can't ever go anywhere because then the Doctor ceases to be sufficiently alien, I think. Uh, that's, that's uh, well, I don't just think that. You know, I'm, I'm convinced that that's completely the truth. And that's, the, the, if there's a deficiency to the new Who, it's been this tendency to have a, a soap opera rolling in the TARDIS between the Doctor and his companion. I mean, Ace and the Doctor, Seventh Doctor, cared about each other incredibly. And you could see that because, you know, when they're under threat. And that, that moved you, and, and that was great. But it, there was no mileage to be had in taking that kind of relationship anywhere else, I, I think. He's an alien, man. And also, he's super, super old. Like, he's so he's so old that it makes the, anything like that. Is, I've always found it a little bit creepy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. there is that interpretation of it. But, it, but he, he's forever, forever young as well. I, and oh, of course. I've got to say, Terence's thing about the pets is, is, like, even worse. Yeah, um... <laughs> He's a, he's a, you know, he's older than your great, 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 great granddad. To me, that's kind of not, not the issue because you, you know, shouldn't, don't immortals also deserve love? But the point is when you enter into that realm in the story, you just, you're not, not in Doctor Who anymore, I think. And it's, you know, he's got to, he's got to maintain his distance because he is that lone Avenger in the night. He's that enigma. And he kind of needs that, I think. And, but I mean, there's been a lot of that kind of mistake in the history of Doctor Who. Making him a Time Lord amongst other Time Lords was a massive mistake because suddenly he went from being this unique entity to being this, you know, just another one of the class in the Pridonian <laughs> Academy, which is ludicrous. <laughs> so I did this thing where I said, okay, all that continuity is true, but it's not the whole truth. There's this other thing going on. He's more than that. There's this fundamental mystery. Mm. He appears to be that, but that's just like the outer layer of the onion. 
actually, I went to see a play a couple of weeks ago. Don't worry, this this will eventually become relevant. And it was written <laughs> by Rona Monroe, stage play in London. No. Normally gifted survival. Rona Monroe, who did Survival and the Eaters, and of, Eaters Light. of Light. Yes. And in her bio, in the the biography that the um, the theatre had prepared for the program, it listed her credits on a show called Dr. Who, as in Big D Little R Who. <laughs> and they obviously thought that's how Doctor Who is spelt. And, and it's not. It's D-O-C-T-O-R who. Why does that matter? Well, you see, Doctor Who is not his name, like Doctor No. It's a question, okay? <laughs> yes. The question is Doctor Who. It's a great title, uh, but, the, but it, there's something important in that that we don't know who he is. So the enigma has always been at the center of that character. It's been crucial. And even from the earliest days, there were attempts to undermine this because as soon as we had the meddling monk, who is this one of the very, very early villains, turns out that he had a TARDIS too, right? So he, mm-hmm. he had a similar shtick to the Doctor, which led to that was where began the thinking that the Doctor wasn't just this unique guy. There was these others like him. Now, I understand from a storytelling point of view, from the need to keep coming up with stories, how that would be useful. And I understand how making him a, a Time Lord and Gallifrey with many others is also useful. But I do think it's, fatal because you're chipping away and chipping away at, at what makes him special and what makes him unique and uh, i i really resist that strongly and, and you know which is you, you can probably guess what i feel about river song and all the rest of it because they just drag him down to earth and yeah so enough about that next question please <laughs> <laughs> well maybe let's just riff on that for a little bit because i think what, what maybe what you're alluding to is something that's popularly known as the cartmore master plan and this ah, idea that uh, <laughs> this idea that there was a, a, a seated mystery at the heart of the particularly McCoy Doctor that was going to pay off in some way, yeah. perhaps in Ghostlight, perhaps uh, elsewhere. Oh, okay. Well, that that you're half of that is completely correct. That I very deliberately and consciously sat down to invest, reinvest the Doctor with mystery, because that's where he'd come from. That's where he'd been, and that had got lost. Uh, under under the tenure of John Nathan Turner, my producer, it has to be said, I think the last really alien doctor was Tom Baker, and he was fab. And then Peter Davison came along, great actor, handsome young leading man, but he was kind of normal. I mean, just look at him. He's clean cut. He's got that white suit. You know, he's he's normal, and you don't want the doctor to be normal. You want him to be alien and a little bit scary. And then Colin Baker came along, another excellent actor, another handsome leading man. But he, again, he, you know, he was he was not alien. And by the time I joined the show, you'd have episodes in which the doctor was like the fall guy, the victim. He was the victim of circumstance. He mm. was not the moving force in the stories. He had become this this chump. So true. I feel like he had there was like a, a real identity crisis by that point in the middle of the eighties. They sort of lost. Well, they did. Yeah, but all they had to do is look back at what he should have been, which is, I think, encapsulated by somebody like Troughton, who was kind of funny and lovable, but he could also be like really scary and alien. And you never <laughs> felt that this was a totally normal guy. And that was that's what had happened. So I knew by the time I was on my second season, it would become very clear to me that that was the problem that had to be solved. So yes, as you said, I definitely had set about to put in that seed of mystery, as you put it. But you then went on to say that it was building to some kind of revelation. Well, no, I understand why it might seem that way. But the crucial thing is that it would never build to any kind of revelation because as soon as you answer the question, you're back where you started. So my idea was to let it be, reset the mystery and leave it at that. 
But uh, yeah, I can understand that misinterpretation. No, and it is a common fan misinterpretation sure. that there was actually some sort of revelation at the end. Oh of the yeah, set. absolutely. It's and and, to I, hear and that I, can, wasn't. I can see why, because you know we kept hinting that he had this godlike stature and power. Mm. But ultimately, you can't ever answer that question because otherwise you're back to square one, as I say. <laughs> sure. So, but the Cartmel Master Plan. Yes, the Carmel Last Plan both did and didn't exist. It totally, <laughs> to, it, it totally did it. Yeah, it's like it's like Schrodinger's master plan. No, but, but it, it, it's completely existed in the sense that I set out to do that, and I did do that with the help of a very talented team of writers and a great actor in the form of Sylvester McCoy mm. and Sophie Aldred. And so I did it. I did that. I achieved it. But it's what isn't true is that there was never a file the Cartmel master plan with, <laughs> with a detailed set of notes about what I was going to do. It was just more like a, a seat of my pants flying, gut instinct. And then it became more formalized as I told the writers what I wanted to do and I told the actors what I wanted to do. And it became clear through the scripts. But the other thing about the Cartmel master plan is that, okay, I finished my time on the show. The show's canceled. Decades pass. Tumbleweeds blow through the scene. Uh, And then I'm at a convention in Los Angeles, Gallifrey One, which is like the big Doctor Who convention in the world. And it was probably the late 1990s. And I was doing a talk. And Paul Cornell, I believe, was in the audience. And he raised his hand. He said, have you ever heard of the Cartmel Master Plan? And the answer was, I'd never heard of it before that moment. So Ah, when, when people sort of conveyed to me what it meant, I thought, oh, yeah, that existed, and I know what they're talking about. It's just I didn't know that people, A, that people had really taken note of it, or B, that they'd called it the Cartmel Master Plan, which is lovely. <laughs> and then it took me about another five years before I suddenly realized, oh, it's a gag on the Dalek Master Plan. So, <laughs> so you know, not not quick on the uptake, but I get there in the end. So the Cartmel Master Plan totally existed, and it was totally a success, but it, it's not quite what people think it is in the sense mm. of not being a formal thing and me not not realizing that people talk about it but it's it's great you know if there's going to be an internet meme about me i'd rather it was that than some of the other things that it could possibly be but yeah i mean you're just trying to make a show week to week right you're trying to you're trying to well dan exactly i do sometimes facetiously say the cartmel master plan was to get the scripts in it on time (laughs) yeah Yeah, you're just trying to yeah trying to make a show um (laughs) We wanted to talk to you a little bit about Ghostlight because we this is that's the episode Please. that's going to go out on. We just wanted to it it, it really great story. It really oh, it, I think it's a story that stands out over the whole twenty six um the whole twenty six year run. Uh, and we just wanted to find out. I just wanted to talk to you about your memories of making it. Well, it's when you say that I kind of feel fabulous and feel terrible because that was the end of the line. Of course, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. we want to talk about that too. Although Survival was the last episode transmitted, Ghostlight was the last episode made. And just about the last shot of that, rather eerily, is of these characters being frozen, like mummified, suspended <laughs> in time. And that's what happened to the show. So it, had, it has an eerie kind of resonance, yeah. both in my memory and, and in the history of the show. Wow. But that's not what you want to hear. You want to hear about what a great show, because it is. It's outstanding. And I'm glad you've chosen it, because it's, it's a bit weird, and people don't get it. And it, it, it used to really bug me that people just didn't understand but having said that even when they didn't understand they were fascinated by it and loved it like my my girlfriend at the time my ex-girlfriend shortly afterwards uh i i saw her many years later and her daughter her little daughter was fascinated by ghost light they used to watch it together and i just thought well this kind of stuff resonates down the years and and so i did eventually discover one reason people found Ghostlight so confusing. And when I did, I thought, ah, that makes sense. Because there's a character in it called Control. 
And people think control is like the commander or the boss because uh, the control is called control. But in fact, what Mark Platt intended was that this was the experimental control. Mm -hmm. So any of you scientists out there know <laughs> that when you do an experiment, you have something that you expect to change and something else back at the ranch that must remain the same for comparison mm -hmm. purposes. Like when you do a drug trial, you give a bunch of people a new drug, but you give a bunch of people a placebo so you can compare the effects on sure. the two. So they're the control group. So this that's what control meant. But if you get the other meaning of control, which a lot of people did, then you, you would be hopelessly confused. Mm -hmm. And that was just one reason people were quite confused. There's also a very complex and rich backstory, which we never really spell out. Uh, and I don't think it's, you know, beyond the wit of man to understand that backstory. But I, again, I can see why it makes the show seem a bit enigmatic and cryptic to people and confusing. But not to you guys, obviously, because you clearly <laughs> love it. Yeah, oh, we adore it. I would it. say. Um, yeah. It's taken. Can you tell why? T tell me, tell me what you love about it, then. I, why? I, okay. I mean, it's well worth loving, but but just can you isolate any of its well, it's appeal? Just that to you? melding of all that, all those Victorian, all those Victorian ideas right. and tropes with uh, with evolution yeah. and change, which are themselves subverted yeah. and portrayed in a very sinister fashion. So you know, the sort of Victoriana children's literature is something that's made very dark and perverse, and and there's something chilling. Oh, isn't about it interesting? That. Um, if I can just interrupt you for a moment there. Uh, I, I did try and get Alan Moore to write for the show. I met oh, him at a comic oh my God, in Lord. London. And I went up to him and I, I recognized him because he's a very distinctive uh, yes, figure. And I is. said, oh, are you Alan Moore? <laughs> and he said, yes. And I said, I'm script editing Doctor Who. Would you like to please write for us? And he said, I don't write for Marvel. And I said, whoa, big fella. I'm not talking about the comic. I'm talking about the TV show. And so he was very interested in writing for oh. it. But he was also incredibly busy. I mean, like, monstrous yeah, this is that's his heyday uh, watchman was just hitting big yeah yeah absolutely and i was very disappointed but also a little bit relieved because i did have this recurrent nightmare that he would write for the show and it would get screwed up like he'd have this fantastic vision that would just get screwed oh, up in sure. a bad doctor special that kind of way so it was slightly it was only a relief in the sense that we i was terrified that we wouldn't do justice to an alan moore script but we did have some phone calls where we discussed it and he said he said to me, I, I liked, I, what I really liked was that Hartnell kind of scary doctor. He said mm. that poking into dark nursery corners, a phrase that's remained in my mind. And so that's exactly what you were just saying there, Steve, right, about the Victorian creepy child, kid story kind of thing. That's exactly what you're saying. Yeah? <laughs> well, yeah, very much so. It's, <laughs> I mean, that's what Ghostlight is to me. Yeah, so Alan Moore had nothing to do with Ghostlight, but it's interesting mm. that Mark Platt, who is a writer of genius, oh. who created Ghostlight, that he should have exactly struck that note. Uh, and it's fabulous that he did. Now, one reason Ghostlight is such a successful story is that, just look at the word Victorian, it's because I kind of knew or learned quickly that the best way to do a great Doctor Who was to root it in some real environment in Earth's history. Hmm. So Remembrance of the Daleks is set in London in 1963. Um, the Curse of Fenric is set during World War II. Oh, Very interestingly, during World War II, that's great. And most wonderful of all is Ghostlight, set in Victorian times. I say most wonderful of all because it's far enough back in time to be exotic to a modern viewer, sure. but it's also recent enough and familiar enough for the BBC design department yes. to do <laughs> a stunning job, like the sets, the costumes, everything. They couldn't have done it better. And so we totally lucked into this um, this wonderful world for the story to take place. And, and because 
we did this thing where each year we did two three-parters. Just to bore you for a moment, we actually had the budget to do two four two four-episode stories and one six-episode story. And John Nathan Turner correctly realized that a six-episode story is usually a bit of a dog. Mm. It's very dull. It's too long. So he would split that into two three-part stories. But the only way he could do that was by shooting one of those almost entirely on location and one almost entirely sure. in the studio. And this was the studio story. And because it takes place in this wonderful Victorian mansion called Gabriel Chase, it's a perfect internalized environment. You don't miss the fact you don't go outside. Right. And also one of the crucial things, and the reason it was called Ghost Light is I was always trying to find a way to take really complicated stories and make them understandable to people in simple terms. So for instance, on Fenric, again, Fenric had a different title too. I think it was called Fenris Wolf or something. Anyway, I, I realized that it involved ancient evil coming back in the present day in the, in the Second World War. So I thought if we call it, if we get the notion of a curse in there, people will understand that recurrence of evil, mm. right? So I said, call it Curse of Fenric, and then we're halfway to people understanding it. And with Ghostlight, I said, call it Ghostlight, because then it seems like a haunted house story. Although it's not, it gives a reference point mm. for people so and, uh, and way in for them to enjoy it. So it is a bit like a Victorian haunted house story, although it's much more than that. Yes. <laughs> oh, wonderful. You're so right about uh, the BBC doing period stuff so well. We've talked about that before, and they just nailed it on this one. The atmosphere is so... It's kind of claustrophobic and dark, and but it's just yeah, it's so well done with all the... and. Uh, and with the costumes and the sets, it's all. And, and we've said this before because uh, Ghostlight's actually the third story that we've chosen from uh, the Sylvester McCoy era. Uh, previous ones actually being Curse of Fenric and Remembrance. And on each of those three, we've commented mm. on just how incredible the BBC production team have made it look That's period a, perfect. Great three for you guys to choose. <laughs> and just to pick up on something Steve said before I steamrolled it over, and he was talking about the importance of. In, inherently Victorian themes sure. like evolution, yeah. which is absolutely right. I mean, that was Mark Platt. I'm not uh, exaggerating when I say he's a writer of genius. He was all over that. Uh, he, he That was totally from him. And we had these fantastic synchronous discoveries. Like he needed a musical song to be played oh. at one point. And they came up with this one, Off to the Zoo, which there's this wonderful discovery <sighs> from the, the BBC uh, research department came up with this thing. They didn't even really know what we were after, but it turned out that one of these nominee songs was this one that absolutely chimed in with the theme mm -hmm. of evolution, right? <laughs> and devolution. Yeah. So it's just, well, you know, it's just stunning. And then you've got that Neanderthal butler. I mean, oh. it's all kind of flooding back to me. <laughs> it's such an amazing, rich, and and it's funny. I mean, there's some, I just think of the, 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 the sheer beautiful dialogue and, and the quips like, you know, the cream of Scotland yeah. garden when they turn the cop into to a yeah. soup. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's both, Horrible and wonderful. And then Mark created this fantastic speech for the doctor about a burnt toast and bus stations. Yes, Do you remember absolutely. that? Absolutely. Lost luggage and lost souls. And I, <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, if you remember more of it, please tell me more because I'm, I'm kind of, <laughs> I don't know the whole thing. But maybe you can f feature that. I can't stand burnt toast. I loathe bus stations. Terrible places full of lost luggage and lost souls. I told you I never wanted to come back here again. And then there's unrequited love and tyranny and cruelty. Too right. We all have a universe of our own terrors to face. And it's just this wonderful speech. And uh, I, I kind of drew on that because I, I wrote a very famous speech that had to be dropped at the end of survival about 
about alien worlds, mm. right? And then I bring it down to earth with a mention somewhere else the tea is getting That's cold, gorgeous. which was kind of a direct homage to the burnt toast, which again <laughs> juxtaposed the, the cosmic with the, the domestic and mundane. Yeah. And just just to touch on one other piece of genius writing by Mark, he said the line goes something like, uh, "You have as much chance of understanding that." as a hamburger does of, of understanding the Amazon desert. Yeah. And I had these, these guys come up to me at a convention, very nice, very nice, intelligent people, but they were baffled by that line I, because there's so much packed into it. I said, okay, the reason you've got an Amazon desert instead of a rainforest is you've cleared the entire mm. place to graze cattle, to make the burger. <laughs> and then it turns into a desert, right? So the connection between the desert and the burger was just wonderful and so i i totally sympathize with anybody who who needs that unpacked for them but once it is unpacked it's like a a, a bomb mo of genius it's, it's a witticism just the, for the ages and that's the kind of stuff that mark platt was coming up with but it was a very weird and complex script i would also um reference things like lewis carroll mm. alice in wonderland that kind of really weird surreal uh, victorian fiction and when we turned up for the first day's reading, what we call the table read with the actors, we had the scripts and, and we're there and I'm there with Mark. And they looked at him and one of the actors said, okay, mate, what what were you sprinkling on your cornflakes? When you this? <laughs> Which I thought was a great... And it also, Mark was is one of those people, I don't think he even... He might have an occasional glass of wine, but I'm not even sure he, he d- does that. So, no, he's not a druggie, but it, he does have a psychedelic imagination par excellence. We wanted to ask you about... um. When you, because you're new in this job, right? You've, you've just started, and yep. one of the first things you seem, well, it seems to, that you did was to suddenly hire a bunch of writers who'd never written for Doctor Who before, which is quite different, and to not rely in any way on any of the writers that had come any before, of, any of the old favourites, which is uh, well, which is a radical move, and I think it, the, I think it really paid off amazingly. Yeah, yeah. thank you, <laughs> thank you. I, I, as I said earlier, because I'd been given this wonderful chance, and I'd been battering at the door for years trying to get in, mm. I felt. I had to give other people a chance to, especially since I, I I already knew a couple of people who were candidates and then to cast my net a bit wider and go looking for people. I did try, I did look at a bunch of established writers and none of them came up with the goods. Mm. Uh, like John had a mate who'd written a bunch of stuff and it's very clever scripts, but he just, it wasn't doc, Doctor Who, not, not the sort of Doctor Who that I could imagine doing. Mm. So there, in a way it was a non-decision. Having said that though, things might've been different if the great Robert Holmes had still been alive, because uh, I think sure. he, was, he was such, I think he was the greatest Doctor Who writer of them all. Mm. And I like to think that had he still been with us, there might've been a conversation to be had there. Wow. But no, I felt I was honor bound to give new writers a chance. And I came up with some great ones. I mean, I was very lucky. Stephen Wyatt was quite experienced, but the rest of them were all really newbies. Rona Monroe, what a wonderful mm. discovery. Oh. I mean, to get her to write, and then she did such a fantastic job. You know, I couldn't. Mm. And the thing is, the reason people don't want to hire new writers for a TV show is it's a very demanding job with a quick turnaround, and they figure new writers are going to be a lot of work. Well, that's true, but you, I've also on shows sat down with old, experienced pros who were a hell of a lot of work. Mm. I mean, they they really weren't. There really was no advantage to be had in that regard. Uh, the only advantage came in once I'd got a writer to do one script for me and we, we they'd got the hang of it. Then they, then it got easier for them. Mm. So like uh, when Briggs did his second one, Carissa Fenrick, when uh, Ben did his second one, um, Battlefield, they, they, well, in fact, that's not really true because Ben got it completely right the first time. 
but with Ian Briggs, he was much more locked on to target for the second one, and it was a lot easier for him. So that, that process did help. What would you say is the one thing that you're most proud of from your time on Doctor Who? I can't say that there's one thing I'm most proud of because almost immediately three things leap into my mind. Number one, I'm immensely proud that I restored the mystery to the Doctor mm. and reinvested him with stature and dignity. Uh, and by the way, when I say I, I do mean me and the writers because I could I could have done nothing without a great team of writers. I also set the template with the writers uh, for the, the Doctor and companion the new the new relationship the way that they interacted and the kind of companion you had which absolutely paved the way for what russell and stephen did with the show it's completely the modern doctor who we created the modern doctor Who, Mm. so i'm very proud of that (laughs) but just to unpack that a bit more some people pointed out to me that it wasn't just that we were ahead of the time with doctor who Ace is such a strong and interesting female character. We were ahead of the curve on virtually all television drama and most of the movies. I mm. mean, at that point, you had had Ripley in Aliens, mm-hmm. Sigourney Weaver's Ripley in Aliens, as the, the tough, independent, competent woman hero. But that was there wasn't many others like that. And in, in, in television, I can only really think, to go back to Sydney Newman and the Avengers. If you remember, they had Emma Peel Absolutely. and Kathy Gale, yeah. Honor Blackman and, and Diana Rigg as these strong, kick-ass women. Mm-hmm. But that would have been like 25 years earlier, 20 years earlier. So I would say that in, even in the landscape of broader television drama, we really were breaking new ground with a character like Ace. Also, we passed the Bechtel test before the Bechtel <laughs> test yes. existed. Yeah. Yeah. So those things make me proud. But the third thing, is that, well, I guess that's four things if we can't count the, the wider television uh, thing. I am really proud that I gave a whole bunch of new writers a chance. And I, I, you know, I, not that many of them went on to have thriving careers because my own career ended somewhat soon. And you need, in television, you need a patron. And because I was no longer a script editor, I couldn't hire them. But they were fantastically talented writers. And that some of them did go on to considerable effect in television, notably Rona Monroe, mm. who to the eternal credit of Stephen Moffat, did write for the new show. So those are the things I'm proud of, yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, this may seem like a bit of a silly question. Uh, I know, and, and I know that you, um, we said before that you were just trying to make a show. I'm sure week to week it was a bit chaotic and a bit crazy and a lot of pressure, but did you, did you guys have, did you, did you have fun? We had a hell of a lot of fun, <laughs> uh, but tempered with the fact that we were under so much pressure, the fun would often end, like you'd be, you wouldn't be having fun when you knew that you had three important shots to get involving elaborate special effects setups and the clock was running and the light was going mm-hmm. and you weren't going to get any more time or any more money. Mm-hmm. So th- this great pleasure was balanced by this enormous pressure. So we had great fun, but it wasn't, it was by no means carefree. Sure. Hmm. Well, I guess we'll ask you a couple of odd questions now. Um, you, you said before about, um, about the end and we and we just wanted to ask you about the the last season i mean no one supposedly no one really knew that it was going to to end at that at the end of that season i had no i don't think anybody did know i think and i've i've compared this i I have several standard answers this one is (laughs) it wasn't so much they ever cancelled the show it was more like the guy who decides he's going to split up with his girlfriend 
and never tells her. He just ghosts her, right? <laughs> so <laughs> he doesn't have the balls to to see her in person or tell her, or even to phone her or text her. He just never takes her calls anymore. So it's a bit like that. With, it wasn't like they, they canceled the show. It's just that they never renewed it. Mm. You know, they just let it lapse. Yeah. I mean, what a... I mean, A, what a cowardly thing to do, but B, what a stupid thing to do. Just because no matter how much you hated Doctor Who, and believe me, it was hated passionately in the upper echelons of the BBC, it made money. It made money all over the world, hand over fist. So let's take this thing, even if you hate it, which is a huge money-making machine, and what, you kill it off? Mm. That just makes no sense Mm. at all. And the other thing was, they'd come to hate it when it was at its nadir, which I'm sorry to say was when under John Nathan Turner's watch and under Colin Baker's appearance in the show, that's when the show was at its lowest because the doctor had become very unsympathetic and he was dressed in this appalling costume and there were some very dodgy stories, including one which I think is in many ways a masterful piece of fiction written by a great writer, which is Vengeance on Varos. But Vengeance on Varos has a really nasty edge to it. Mm. And I remember when I heard that Michael Grade had decided to cancel the show, I have no proof of this, but I think that the final straw had probably been Vengeance on Varos. So what I'm saying is that the BBC hierarchy had formulated this negative view of Doctor Who, but I don't think they looked at what we were doing. How could you have looked at the stuff that we were doing towards the end and still cancel the show? How could you watch Survival and cancel that show? So I think the most damning indictment of those people is they... They cancelled it without even knowing what they were cancelling. Mm. And it was just, it was a complete tragedy. And, uh, I, you know, it was just, it's appalling. And I also have compared it to, to, to being in battle and, and charging along on your horse and having your horse shot out from under you. You're sort of suddenly lying there in the middle of the battlefield. What happened? Because mm. just everything just stopped at that point. So that's, yeah, that's my, my story about the show being cancelled. It is fascinating to hear that because I think there's, you know, we've certainly talked about it and, you know, we've heard a lot of, lot of uh, fan conjecture that uh, as fantastic as the McCoy era was under yourself and J&T with, with uh, Sophie and Sylve, it was almost as though it was too little too late um, after a point in time that had already been determined and no matter what yeah, you I did... Think, in the eyes of the people uh, on the top floor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. That I, I think I, I agree completely, Steve, that that's, they'd already made their minds yeah. up and... Mm-hmm. and just they weren't to be dissuaded by facts they were just going to do it anyway and also what i wanted to say though because i just badmouthed john which i'll stand by i mean he'd let the show really get stale and and become not what it should be but at the same time this is the same producer who enabled me and sylve and sophie and the writers to bring the show back. He dug it into a hole, but he he was there helping us dig it out again. Yeah. So you've got to look at the man in the round. You've got, you've got to take a balanced view. Sure. And he got us into that mess, but he was getting us back out of it. Yeah. It's just a shame that it happened, I mean, in 1989, because the show was as good as it ever has been in mind. We were very proud of it, and we're doing a great job. But So it's just, it just shows... I think the people at BBC probably still hate Doctor Who, but it's been such a huge success, it's difficult for them to cancel. And they hate it for a number of reasons, but mostly because it's science fiction, I think. And people, unless science fiction is has received the the sort of anointing and blessing of literature, when it's regarded as something like 1984 by Orwell right. or Animal Farm or The uh, the Handmaid's Tale, Batwood, yep. those are suddenly they're like they're not science fiction anymore. Mm. 
their their literature. Mm. We're, but Doctor Who is science fiction, and, and people have got their knives out for science fiction. Um, um, so yeah, so you guys were sort of out in the out in the cold a little bit. Um, and you sort of went from being script editor on Doctor Who, and you moved um sort of sideways onto to being script editor at Casualty. What was it like to um to shift from one to the other? Well, there was a lot of good things about it. These were hour long episodes, which are more interesting. They were self contained, whereas I was doing three and four parters on Doctor Who, so that format was a difference. It was a big hit show, yeah, which was you know a huge difference. On the other hand, the, the producer I was working for was not too bright and was not very nice. And he was a terrible person to work with from, from the writer's point of view. Because the worst thing you can have is somebody who doesn't understand scripts, but thinks he does and will interfere. You see, John didn't. John Nathan Turner did not understand scripts. But as soon as it became clear that I knew what I was doing, he would just give me my freedom to do it. Right. And he, he actually gave me a huge amount of leeway. Like he would let me do stuff that he thought was crazy <laughs> and totally out there. And then thank God it turned out to work out. <laughs> and, you know, occasionally I'd screw up, but nothing major, but he would let me do that. But on casualty, there was none of that. Oh. Um, this Joker, um, Peter Norris, who was the producer, he firmly believed that he understood scripts, but he didn't. He had the mentality of an accountant and he never, what he did understand was plot. He could understand a big thumping juicy plot. I always say it's like if you had an, uh, if you run a symphony orchestra and the guy who's ultimately in charge is stone deaf, but he can feel the vibrations of the big bass drum. So he wants every piece of music to have the big bass drum dominant because it's the only thing he can feel. Uh, and when you've got a, like a beautiful violin solo, he can't hear it. And he thinks there's nothing happening. <laughs> he actually said to me at one point, dialogue isn't important because oh, I have these scripts God. by people like Ian Briggs and Ben Aronovich and Rona Monroe with this wonderful dialogue and great characterization. And all he cared about was plots and twists, which are important, but they're not the whole deal. Mm-hmm. So that was so casualty was a nightmare and although it was a nightmare for me that wasn't the main thing it was a nightmare for writers i hired like ben aronovich who was very badly treated on it and to this day i feel a terrible guilt that i couldn't have protected him more because he's one of the greatest screenwriters who's ever lived and for him to be mistreated like that is just you know beyond the pale Mm. so i'm still angry about casualty because if they'd just let us get on with it we could have crafted award-winning scripts but it wasn't to be so that was a very unhappy experience. At that point, I left the BBC. And that's what I meant about my generation of writers losing their uh, patron because they needed somebody who was going to hire them. And after I left, some of them went on to get a lot more work. People like Tony Etchells and Robin Mukherjee, who had brought in, they did really well. Stephen Wyatt did quite well for a while, uh, then moved into radio. But people like Ian Briggs, Ben Aronovich just did not. And that's you know, that's unforgivable. Mm. That baby, I ain't going to forgive it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, uh, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we should ask you before you go to give us uh, perhaps a, a, a bit of an outline of, of what you're working on at the moment, in particular the successful Vinyl Detective series of books that you've been writing over the last few years. Okay, well, okay, boys and girls, this is the part in the show where I sell you my words. <laughs> so let me shamelessly... Uh, just be a huckster and tell you all about all this stuff. First of all, if you are a Doctor Who fan, I imagine you must be. And if you're interested in The Seventh Doctor, I can sincerely recommend my book, Script Doctor, because what happened was in the years when I was working on the show, I actually kept diaries. And I discovered that these were like a treasure trove of information. It literally is like being there making the show. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in The Seventh Doctor 
or making television during that period. This is a unique and invaluable book. I really, and I, I recommend it so highly that, you know, even if you don't want to buy it, get it from the library. It, it's unbeatable. It's a fantastic mm. book about the period. I say that in all modesty. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, if you're a Doctor Who fan, you may be interested in knowing that I've just written a, a series of comics featuring the Seventh Doctor and Ace for Titan. Mm. And it, this this mini series is called Operation Volcano. Uh, it's three issues long. The first issue's just out and the second's on its way. It's beautifully drawn by Christopher Jones. I'm not on royalties for this, so when I'm urging you to buy it, you can know that I'm, I'm being sincere. I just think it's, if you like the Seventh Doctor and Ace, it's lovely stuff, and Christopher's art is just stunning. And I'm very happy with the way it's turning out. So that's the Doctor Who part uh, out of the way. I'd like to talk to you about the other comic I'm writing, which is called Rivers of London, which I co-write with oh, Ben Aronovich. Wow. It's based on his series yeah, of books. Yes. They, these these are original stories set in the universe of Rivers London. They're not adaptations of the books. They're new and original stories, and they're canon, if people know what that means <laughs> and if they care about it. They're canonical. And uh, uh, the latest one is called Waterweed. That's appearing as a series of four uh, monthly comics, and then it'll be a, a graphic novel. And the most recent graphic novel, which has just come out, is called Cry Fox. And I'm very proud of these. They're beautifully drawn by Lee Sullivan. Oh. Uh, and if you just check them out, I think you'll, you'll get a kick out of them. I do get royalties on those. <laughs> What's it like to work with Ben? What was it like to work with Ben again after all those years? You know what? It was just so great. We'd, I was going to say we'd never lost touch. We did lose touch for a couple of years. And then I got a television gig making a TV show called Dark Knight, mm. not that one, uh, in New Zealand at um, Avalon Studios in Wellington. And so I was, my first order of business was to hire Ben to write a script for us, because why wouldn't I? He's the best. <laughs> and that, since then, we've been in touch almost constantly. And just because I mentioned Rivers of London, let me go into a bit of detail about it. Rivers of London is a series of urban fantasies you might call them they're they're crime novels with a supernatural twist Mm. because they're about the branch of the London police that deals with the supernatural and they're fantastic books and the way they came about was that Ben was writing a TV he wanted to write a TV series with exactly that premise and that it was called Magic Cops that was the working title it was Magic Cops (laughs) and it became ironically enough we discovered we couldn't get arrested we couldn't get work in television for decades which is another story and so when ben couldn't sell this as a tv series he thought what the hell i'll turn it into a novel and so he did and a best-selling series of novels it is too so uh yeah so what is it like working with ben after all these years i kind of never stopped in a sense because (laughs) when he was writing the rivers of london novel he would send me the chapters for me to comment on to edit so and in fact just before this is this is true just before i talked to you guys today Right up to the wire, because we were going to get a Skype you at five o'clock. Right up to the wire, he'd sent me a new chapter of his new book, which I was editing. Chapter 12. So I finished that, emailed it, then I Skyped you guys. And after I sign up with you guys, I've got chapter 13 to it. So, I mean, so the, our collaboration has been constant. And then when Titan Books approached Ben about doing some comics based on his fantastically successful series... He immediately enlisted me because he's too busy to do them all himself. And so we've been co-writing them. And it's been great. But it's been part of a continual collaboration, which is just sort of it, it we just got busier or less busy over the years, but it's never, the connection's never really completely gone dead. That's thank lovely. God. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Lovely. That's beautiful. <laughs> 
But allow me to flog you my vinyl detective novels. Mm. Um, I was going to hold one up to the screen, but I've just realised there's audio only. <laughs> so, OK, well, the, the, all that business about the Rivers of London is very relevant because Ben went from starving, basically, like being in debt, working in a bookshop and having no money, to being a huge best-selling novelist. Mm. And I thought, you know... <laughs> I'd like to do that because <laughs> I was still, still starving. I wasn't working in a bookshop, but I was still starving. Not starving, but I was broke. And I said, okay, Ben, what's the trick? And he said, write about what you really love. And I said, well, you know, I, I love record collecting. <laughs> I love vinyl records and hi-fi and listening to jazz and looking for records in old junk shops. We'd call them charity shops in, in England. And that, and so, yeah. And I also love crime fiction. So that in, in that way, the vinyl detective was born because he's exactly the guy I just described. He has a hi-fi. He, he, he loves jazz. He loves vinyl. And he goes hunting for rare records in charity shops and boot fairs. I don't know if you guys have different terminology. In America, they'd say thrift stores and bring and buy meets and garage sales. So that kind of, you get the picture, the kind of thing, yeah, right. right? It's a little closer here. So, the terminology is a little closer here. We are still part of the empire. So. <laughs> Yeah, so the charity shops, boot fairs, and he so that's how he he scraped out a living. But in the first book, this beautiful it's a classic private eye story set because a beautiful mysterious woman turns up and hires him to look into a dangerous case which involves the search for a rare record. And basically, all the, the novels do hinge on the search for a rare record or something similar. Mm. And we've got the third one has just been published. It's called Victory Disc. It was a very attractive green cover. So the books are, number one, Written in Dead Wax. Number two, uh, The Run Out Groove. Number three, Victory Disc. I had to pause for a moment there because in my head I've also got number four, which is called Flip Back, which I, I should be writing instead of talking to these guys who've got me talking on, in Australia. Yeah, so that, it's the, the first book went over very well and they've contracted me for a fourth and possibly a fifth. Um, Again, to go back to Ben, uh, he said, write about what you really know and love. And so I created this character who's very strongly based on me. And Ben said, have you included your cats? And I said, no, I can't. I, I, that would be a step too far to put my cats into the book. You know, because basically the guy lives in my house. He has my hi-fi. He has my taste in music. He has my life. Ben said, no, you must put the cats in. And that was such a great piece of advice because people just love the cats. Sometimes their favorite character in the books is a cat. And I, I don't want to turn off anybody there who's not a cat lover because they're not a huge feature. But when you have a crime story, a detective story, it isn't all just about the case. Mm. To make it work, you need a little bit of downtime, a little bit of connective tissue, a little bit of contrast. So you give the guy a bit of a life. And in, in the background of his life is the cats, for example. Mm. They just, they're tremendously good value because they, they, the, they make the guy real, down to earth and real. Mm. So when very extraordinary things and scary things happen to him and to his partner in crime, who's called Nevada, uh, they, they're rooted in a reality which people can buy, mm. buy into. So I guess what I'd say is uh, you can... Download an ebook. There's probably some free chapters out there. You can get the audiobooks, or you just borrow them from your library. I'm a, a tremendous advocate of libraries because we've had this evil government in in Britain for a number of years. We've been trying to close all the libraries, which is just you know obscene. So go to your library, borrow one of these books. Just remember the Vinyl Detective. Check it out. See if you like it. I hope you will because I I kind of love these books passionately, and I'm and they are acquiring a following. So I'm very pleased, and I'm very grateful to Steve and Dan for letting me uh, 
you know, try and flog my wares oh, to it's you our, here on their show. It's oh, our pleasure. You guys. I actually Googled, Googled the books recently and um, uh, on Goodreads uh, on the website, um, the first review that came up was Ben Aronovich. It said five stars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he put in a fix for me. But I just want to say, Dan, don't Google them, just buy them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to now. There you go. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so very much for your time as two fanboys of the McCoy era uh, growing up watching it. It's just been an absolute privilege and a joy talking with you today. It's so really fun. It's, well, it's been a pleasure, guys. It has. I do have one question. Hanging in the background just over Steve's left shoulder, uh, I'm sure it's not, but it looks like the Sylvester McCoy pullover. It's got the right kind of colours. <laughs> you mean this here? That the- <laughs> oh, it, it's yeah, obviously that, not, yeah. but it's got a cut. It's, it looks like the red and green. Isn't that That's weird? That's my girlfriend's. It's a uh, it's a silky pink thing. I don't know what it is. Yeah, well, if you if you look at any of the footage, if you, in fact, if you just hang it back up in the door and look at it on your your vignette camera, you'll see that it's, it almost could be a kind of pixelated version of the the sweater with the, uh, the question mark. The old question mark sweater. I have no idea what this is about, and I'm hoping it's not cheeky or, or rude to ask it because yep. uh, our, our, other, our other podcast, Colin, had a question. He wanted, um, yeah, our Col- our Colin asked us to ask you if you can tell us a story about Eric Sayward's locked desk, locked desk drawer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Eric, very nice man, was my predecessor on Doctor Who. He had had a terrible falling out with the producer, John, mm. and he had stormed out and he'd left. And I sort of my first clue to what had happened uh, was when I sat down at my desk in my office, which had been Eric's desk in Eric's office just a few weeks ago, a few months earlier. And I tried to open the desk drawer and I couldn't because the key had been snapped off in the lock. Right. So I got a BBC carpenter to come around and open the drawer for me. And inside there were a couple of kind of shredded script pages and rolling around a wine glass with some red wine stains in it. So I had this vision of Eric's final act on the show being Natalie snapping back a glass of red wine, finishing it, throwing it in the desk drawer, shutting the desk drawer, snapping the key off, like, take this job and shove it. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, that's, which probably is not a, not a, not an, an it's in, I'm sure it's a pretty accurate picture, actually. Yeah. That's great. Well, there's that mystery solved. <laughs>